record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to concentrate on the study of God's Word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word. Your word is designed to inform us about the nature of reality, and your word is sufficient for every area of life. As such, you have informed us about the past, the present, and the future. Father, as we study on the revelation and look at all that you have here, we pray that we would be mindful of the fact that this, these truths have direct application to our mental attitude and our motivation during the church age. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and perhaps today we will get into the first verse. Study of Revelation frequently brings out people who are interested in having their curiosity satisfied, people who just want to know about the future, people who uh, just want to be uh, somehow stimulated by a study of what's happening in the Middle East, what's happening in the world, how current events fit into biblical prophecy. And this is a major error and and a common misconception that somehow current events fit into biblical prophecy. Now, we will study this in more detail as time goes by, but there are three different ways, basically three different ways to interpret prophecy that are prevalent today. And we will have to understand these because of their popularity uh, in the world today. The first view is called the preterist view. If you just remember past, present, and future, you'll remember this. Preterist is past, and this is the idea that everything talked about by Jesus in Matthew 24, most of Revelation has already been fulfilled in the past. All this was just symbolic code language to talk about the reign of Nero in the Roman Empire, code language to talk about the fall of Jerusalem 
And so everything came back, everything was fulfilled prior to 70 AD, and that Jesus returned spiritually in 70 AD. There's a few people who are called full preterists who believe that Jesus returned in 70 AD and established the new heavens and the new earth. That means you're living in the new heavens and new earth. Think about that. So, but this is becoming more and more popular today. And it's amazing how many respected Bible teachers that you may hear on the radio have become seduced by preterism, at least partial preterism, in the last five or six years. Historicism, though, is a view that is more popular. If preterism is in the past, Historicism is interpreting the events of, of Revelation as ongoing during the present church age. And the idea there is that, that, it, that this is an unfolding of history down through the church age until Jesus returns. And according to the historicism view, you can turn to one of the chapters in Revelation and figure out where you are, what's happening in history, and start plugging in the events of the Middle East or wherever into a a prophetic scenario. Often you'll hear people talk about, well, these are the signs of the times. But if you go, and we will in our, the course of our study in Revelation, study the use of the phrase, the signs of the times, in Matthew 24, these were signs related to the second coming of Jesus Christ. No prophecy is fulfilled necessarily in the church age related to the church age or the ending of the age. I'm, going to, I'm careful how I'm saying that now. There is no prophecy that has to be fulfilled before the rapture can occur. Let me say that again. No prophecy has to be fulfilled before the rapture can occur. In other words, the next event in God's prophetic timetable is the rapture of the church. It is, this is based on a doctrine called eminency. We'll see some verses supporting this, this this morning, that Jesus Christ can come back at any moment. Nothing must happen in human history, nothing must happen on the prophetic timetable before Jesus can return in the clouds for the church. It could happen today, it could happen tomorrow, it could happen in a hundred years. Paul thought it would happen in his lifetime. Many others have thought it would happen in their lifetime. As a result of this, many people have thought they've been able to identify the Antichrist. The various attempt to even identify the Antichrist, if you're on the earth, really is part of historicism. In historicism, you think you can identify these things here and now. And there have been many attempts down through history to identify the Antichrist. The Antichrist was identified with various popes during the Middle Ages and post Reformation. You got to change my battery? Okay. Time out. Yep.
Okay, I completely lost that train of thought. Anyway, in, in historicism, people try to identify all of these different events, who the main characters are in Revelation. If you go back to the Middle Ages, they tried to attach that label to various popes. They tried to attach that label during the American War for Independence on George III. He was the Antichrist. After that, Napoleon was the Antichrist. In World War I, the Kaiser was the Antichrist. I think before that, they even tried to attach it to Bismarck in the 19th century. Hitler, of course, was a prime candidate to be the Antichrist, and Mussolini, the false prophet. And then later on, you get other suggestions, such as Henry Kissinger, Ronald Wilson Reagan, because there are six letters in each name, 666. Bill Clinton, of course, was the latest candidate for the Antichrist, and there have been uh, many others. We don't know who it is. In fact, some guy down in, in uh, New London, I think it's the owner of the Christian bookstore down there, has just written a book where he identifies Saddam Hussein as the Antichrist. And the reality is, if you think you know who the Antichrist is, you're either distorting Scripture or you've been left behind. We don't know who the Antichrist is going to be. He is not revealed, according to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, until after the restrainer is removed. And that's the Holy Spirit. So as long as church-age believers are present on the planet and the Holy Spirit is indwelling church-age believers, then the Antichrist is not going to be revealed. Now, you may guess, but you won't know if your guess is right until after you've been raptured. So Christians don't need to be speculating about who the Antichrist is. See, we're not supposed to be looking for the Antichrist. We're supposed to be looking for the return of Jesus Christ. And that's the next thing on the prophetic scenario, which is the return of Christ at the, at the rapture. So many people get caught up in all kinds of speculation about how we fit into biblical prophecy. And we don't know, as we saw in our study of Daniel, and as we'll see as we get into the prophetic aspect of Revelation, there is a time lapse between the end of the, tribu- uh, end of the present church age, the rapture, and the beginning of the tribulation. The seven-year period of the tribulation, which is also known as the time of Jacob's trouble, it's known as Daniel's 70th week from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and following. And Daniel's 70th week describes that seven-year period that is the Great Tribulation. And it begins when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty or covenant with the nation Israel. That's what kicks off the Tribulation. And there are those that believe that there could be many years between the rapture and the tribulation. That is pure speculation. It could be a few months. It could indeed be a couple of years. There are transition periods between other dispensations. For example, Christ is the end of the law on the cross. But it's not for another uh, 50 days, seven weeks, until Pentecost when the church age begins. So you're in a transition period between two dispensations for approximately a seven-week period of time. So so any number of things can happen. If the rapture were to occur today, just think about who would be removed. We would have a large number of politicians 
removed from the earth. There's a lot of believers who are sitting, believe it or not, there's a lot of believers who are in Congress, who are in the Senate. Our president is a believer. I believe the vice president is a believer. There are members of the cabinet who have clearly indicated that they understand the gospel and are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are an innumerable number of CEOs and uh, top executives and administrators and economists and business leaders throughout this country that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they all vanish in an instant, you can imagine the chaos in this country. That will bring chaos in other countries as well because there are believers who are in positions of influence and power and authority in both civilian life and military life in other nations as well. And so there's going to be tremendous disorder when all of the believers, it's, it's speculative and it's uh, to think about, but when you have the rapture, there will be people, there will be airplanes to crash, cars to crash, all kinds of things that are going to take place, and it will take time to restore order. I believe it's in that, into that vacuum that the person who will become the Antichrist will move, and he will, his ability to restore order during that time is what will elevate him to a position of prominence and a position of leadership in that post rapture world, but he is not revealed as to who he is until he signs that peace treaty with Israel. So it's completely fruitless to try to uh, identify the uh, Antichrist during this period of time or to identify anything related to the signs of the times because so many different things can happen as a result of the chaos from the rapture that will cause a restructuring globally that we, we, we can see certain indications of things that are going to happen in the tribulation period, and it could conceivably be much closer today, and we just know chronologically it is much closer today than it was 2,000 years ago. But another aspect is that many things that have to take place and will be in position at the beginning of the tribulation, seem to already be in position. So that suggests that we're, we are close, and I believe that we are close, but I'm not going to say we're the rapture generation because there's no way of knowing that. Now, the principle I was laying down before we had the little problem with the, with the battery and had to change things was that during the present church age, there is no prophecy. The next event, actually draw the arrow this way, the next event is the rapture. And when the rapture occurs, that's the next event prophetically. But that's not the same, that's not saying the same thing as saying that no prophecy is fulfilled in the church age. Now I want to make that distinction. The next thing that happens on God's prophetic timetable is the rapture. There's no prophecy that has to be fulfilled before the rapture. However, if time goes by and certain things that are going to take place in the trib are set up at the end of the church age, then there may be prophetic fulfillment during the last few years of the church age, but this doesn't have anything to do with the church. It doesn't have anything to do with your spiritual life. It doesn't have anything to do with the timing of the rapture. 
it does set things up so that once the rapture occurs, then various things that are going to take place at the beginning of the tribulation can take place. For example, before the tribulation can start, before the tribulation can begin, there has to be a nation Israel. What starts the tribulation? The Antichrist signs a peace treaty with the nation Israel. The conclusion is a nation has to exist, known as Israel, not a regenerate nation, but an unregenerate nation. It's clear from the Old Testament, we'll go through these passages, that there are two returns of Jews to the land that are prophesied. One is a return in unbelief, and the other is a return in belief. And I believe that we have seen the return and are seeing the return in unbelief. And this has been going on for the last hundred years. Jews are returning to the land, and they have established a nation. Now, that means that 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 nation is going to play a prominent role once the rapture occurs. So I believe that is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies in Ezekiel 34 and 35 and other passages about a return to the land. Now, somebody may say, well, don't you think that that, uh, Israel could be run into the ocean by the Arabs next week and the nation dissolved and then it may not happen for another thousand years? No, I do not. That's not possible. See, the Bible speaks of one return in unbelief, not multiple returns in unbelief. And this is one return in unbelief, and there must be a return in unbelief before the, the tribulation can begin. So it's, it stands to reason that if, there, if the rapture is close and you come towards the end of the church age, that it's conceivable that that return in unbelief could occur prior to the rapture. And so, But this doesn't have anything to do with us as a church age. It doesn't indicate that the rapture is around the corner. It may be. But this nation, Israel, could exist for 300 years before Jesus Christ returns at the rapture. But I don't think that this nation, Israel, will be run into the ocean. And just because they've returned in in a state of unregeneracy doesn't mean that's not a biblical return. Too many people have missed the clear passages in Scripture that talk about a return in unbelief as well as a return in belief. So we will look at those as we did when we studied through Daniel. It's important to study prophecy. It's important to study these things because they play an important role in Scripture. So why is it that we should study prophecy? Why is it important? Some people want to uh, denigrate prophecy to some degree and say, oh, that just stimulates people's curiosity. That just gets them all interested in newspaper exegesis. We need to be studying the Christian life. Well, according to the Bible, it is a valid and important dimension of our spiritual life today. Why should we study prophecy? Well, first of all, 28% of the Bible was prophetic when it was revealed. If prophecy is not that important because it's something that's going to take place far off in the future, then most of the Bible wouldn't have even been read and studied when it was originally given. But 28% of the Bible, that's a little more than one-fourth of the Scripture, was prophetic when it was revealed. 15% of the Bible is still unfulfilled prophecy. 15%. So to say that we really shouldn't study prophecy or it's not that important because that's what's going to happen in the future is to say that one-seventh of the Scripture 
is not important, and that's in contradiction to the clear statement of 1 Timothy 3:16 and 17, that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture, that includes both the genealogies, as we'll see in Genesis uh, 10 and 11 on Wednesday night, and that includes the prophetic passages. 18% of the New Testament epistles, that means one out of every five verses, roughly, is unfulfilled prophecy. New Testament epistles are written to church-age believers. 18% of New Testament epistles, one out of every five verses, in, is unfulfilled prophecy. So we need to be studying that. One in 12 verses in the New Testament, that includes Gospels and Epistles, one in 12 verses in the New Testament refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. One in 12 verses refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. One in 10 verses in the Epistles refer to the second coming of Christ. One-tenth of the Epistles. Epistles are written to church-age believers. One-tenth of the verses refer to the second coming of Christ. And then 60% of verses in the New Testament or the interpretation of 60% of the verses in the New Testament are, is affected. The interpretation is affected by eschatology issues in order for them to be properly understood. 60% of the verses in the Scripture have to be understood correct. I mean, you have to have a correct eschatological understanding. You have to have a correct view of prophecy, or you will misinterpret 60% of the verses in the New Testament. That tells you that prophecy is important. Now, the other thing that I've noticed about prophecy in my own study is that prophecy builds on every other dimension of theology. You have bibliology, which is the study of the Bible, how we got the Bible, canonicity, inspiration, authority of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture. All of these things have to be understood. Theology proper, who is God? The essence of God, the attributes of God. Uh, Christology, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the doctrines related to the Holy Spirit. Doctrines related to sin and salvation. All have to be understood before you're going to properly understand a lot of eschatology, which is the technical theological term for prophecy. Eschatos is the Greek word meaning last days or last things. And logos is the study. So eschatology is the study of last days or the last things. This is why it's important to study prophecy is because without that understanding of the overall plan of God, what God is doing, where history is going, you can easily misinterpret and therefore misapply 60% of the New Testament. Furthermore, we must understand that the study of prophecy is not about solving questions related to human curiosity about the future. I mean, that's just a normal thing for us to be curious about what's going to happen in the future. How do we know when Jesus is coming back? The disciples asked those questions. They asked Jesus, what are the signs of your coming? Jesus didn't say, that's a stupid question. You don't need to know about prophecy. You just need to live your spiritual life today. Jesus gave the uh, discourse in Matthew 24 called the Olivet Discourse in order to answer that question. And not only that, but God revealed 
a tremendous amount of information about uh, future things in Daniel, many of the minor prophets, and the New Testament was not going to be considered complete, and therefore the Scripture not sufficient until you had it capped off by the revelation of Jesus Christ, the final book in the New Testament. So we have to recognize that prophecy is not about stimulating our interest in current events or solving problems or questions related to our own curiosity. Why, then, is prophecy given? What is the biblical reason for the giving of prophecy? Well, let me suggest four reasons. First of all, the giving of prophecy is designed to encourage believers in times of adversity. It's designed to encourage believers in times of adversity. Prophecy teaches that God is in control of the events of human history. History is moving in a direction. It's not just endless cyclical uh, periods that repeat themselves, which is what you find in Eastern thought, in Buddhism, Hinduism, and in a lot of uh, mysticism. In Christianity, history is going somewhere. There is a plan and a purpose, and there will be resolution. This is what you see, for example, in the book of Daniel. Daniel was written at a time when the Jews were being defeated by their enemies and they were being taken out of the land. And Daniel is written to tell them that, yes, you will return to the land. Yes, the promises that God made to Israel will be fulfilled in the future. And, yes, God is still in control, even though you are going through all of this uh, horrible suffering and adversity. Your homes are being destroyed. Your livelihoods are, are being, being destroyed. Your children are being taken as captives to Babylon. And though you may be going through all of this horrendous suffering, nevertheless, God has a plan and a purpose. God is in control of the details of history. And ultimately, things will be resolved. Evil be, will be resolved uh, and judged. The second reason prophecy is given is to inform believers about a future coming evaluation. It is to inform us about a future evaluation, that we are to be motivated by the fact that we are going to be evaluated on the basis of what we do with our Christian life. That is the judgment seat of Christ. We need to prepare for that. There is an evaluation for everyone. The evaluation for unbelievers at the great white throne judgment is related to their salvation. Evaluation for believers is not related to our salvation, but it is related to our future roles and responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. So prophecy is designed to inform us about that and to motivate us in that area. Third, Prophecy is given to provide details about the end-time events for the encouragement, protection, and direction of tribulation saints. This information is given to Israel in Matthew 24 to tell them that when you see these certain signs take place, you are to flee to the mountains. There is a time for you to leave Jerusalem and a time for you to flee to the mountains, and God will protect you. It provides encouragement for tribulation saints that no matter how horrible it becomes, and believe me, as we go through the tribulation section of Revelation, it is a horrible time. It is an unprecedented time in human history. We have never seen anything like this in human history at all. Nothing comes close. Recently, in light of my trip to Russia and past trips over there and my interest in military history, 
I've gone back to view a series of, uh, of videos that ran on PBS a few years ago called Blood in the Snow, a history of uh, Russia in World War II. And the Russians lost 28 million people in World War II. You just study the siege of Leningrad for 900 days. The city of Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg, was surrounded by the German troops, and people were ripping the wallpaper off their walls and boiling it to make, make some kind of porridge out of the wallpaper paste just to live. And that's, that's some of the uh, more polite ways they lived. There were instances when people died and they, their frozen carcasses were out in the streets. Remember, St. Petersburg is under ice and snow most of the, most of the year. Then... They would just go out and bring the bodies in, thaw them out, and cut them up and eat them. There was cannibalism. It was a horrendous time. And, and then the, you have the siege of Stalingrad down in the south. And that period was just an incredible time where they just literally fought. The Russians fought the Germans house to house and street to street for a period of almost six months before the Russians finally defeated the Germans. That's nothing Nothing compared to what will happen on a daily basis during the second half of the tribulation. Demons will no longer be invisible or unseen as they are now, but will be seen. Satan will be cast to the earth halfway through the tribulation, and you will have a demon army of 200 million unleashed on the human race during the second half of the tribulation. Over By, by the halfway point of the tribulation, half of the population on the earth will have died. This is a time of unprecedented uh, ecological disaster, cosmic disaster. There will be geophysical disasters, meteorological disasters, the like of which we have never, ever seen or experienced. And so Revelation is written to encourage the believers who are having to live through that horrendous time as well as to give them direction and protection. Fourth reason that revelation is given is to, and prophecy is given is to complete God's revelation to mankind with reference to the sufficiency of Scripture. With the conclusion of this book, the New Testament canon was complete, and God could say that He had given the human race everything they needed to know in order to live their spiritual life. And part of that was to have an understanding of uh, events in history and the resolution of history. Now, as part of the uh, second point, I stated that believers were to be informed about the uh, coming evaluation and that this would be a motivation. I want to show you some of the passages from the New Testament that emphasize how prophecy is designed to motivate the church-age believer. In 1 Corinthians 7.29, Paul is talking about marriage. He's talking about whether you should get married or whether you should be uh, remain single. Verse 29, he said, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, which has the idea that history somehow has been contracted or compacted. We think, well, 2,000 years has gone by. Well, Scripture says, nevertheless, time has been contracted. So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as if they did not possess. 
Verse 31, those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how we may please the Lord. The point that he is making comes out of verse 29. The time has been shortened. Paul thought the rapture would occur in his generation. Therefore, he's, he has a sense of urgency about living the Christian life, carrying out the mission of the church. Part of the test for the church in the 21st century is that 20 centuries have gone by when Jesus didn't return. So the test is one of complacency. Are you going to just become complacent and say, well, you know, he could come back tomorrow, but he probably won't. So why should I have this sense of urgency on the importance of living the spiritual life? 1 Corinthians 7, uh, let's go to the next passage, Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Why? The Lord is near. And here we have the Greek word engus. It's spelled E, little, actually it's E-G-G-U-S, but whenever you have a double G in Greek, you pronounce it like it's, as if it's an N-G, as in angelos, same, same concept. But what Paul is saying there in Philippians 4, 5, is that the Lord is near. This is our motivation to live the spiritual life is because the Lord's coming is at any moment. We don't know when. It could be tomorrow. So we need to be serious about living the Christian life today. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep. That is the idea of becoming complacent in your life in, in regard to spiritual things. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. And that doesn't mean that you're, that sober doesn't mean lack of alcoholic uh, or lack of inebriation. It means to be uh, objective mind, objectively minded as a result of doctrine in the soul. So the challenge here is that at any day the Lord can return. So we need to be ready. We need to be thoughtful. We need to be looking for His return, living each day, making each decision in light of the fact that we need to be ready for the Lord's return. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 builds on this same idea. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This has to do with the gathering together of believers in fellowship, which ultimately is around the Word. Let us consider how to stimulate one, one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, there should be an increase of this. As you realize that Jesus' return is closer and closer, it should stimulate you to spend more time in Bible study, more time in application, more time focused on spiritual growth, more time focused on spiritual priorities, and as a result of spiritual growth, spiritual service, utilizing your spiritual gifts. As you see the day drawing near, and there is, we have the verb form of the noun I just mentioned, Drawing near is engizo. Engus is the noun. Engizo 
is the verb. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing word studies on ingus and ingizo now. We will spend a lot of time on this as we get into Revelation. This is key. The Lord's drawing is near. These words are used many times in relationship to his appearance. James 5.8, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the what? The coming of the Lord is near. Ingus, it is at hand. Be ready. See, nothing has to happen before the Lord can come back. No prophecy must be fulfilled before the Lord can return at the rapture. So we need to be ready. We need to be patient. We need to be pursuing our spiritual life, spiritual growth. 1 Peter 4.7, The end of all things is near. Ingus again. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. What is to be the motivation for living the Christian life today? It's a recognition that Jesus could come back tomorrow. Are we ready? Now, see, a lot of people don't like that. They say, oh, that's guilt. That's manipulative. This is what the Bible says. Be ready. The Lord could come back today, could come back tomorrow. This needs to be a reality in our thinking. 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. The time is near. And then at the close of Revelation in 22, verse 10, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of this prophecy. That would be to close it to understanding. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is is near. And once again, we have the uh, noun ingus. It is at hand. We need to be ready. So this is the importance of studying prophecy. This is to stimulate us, to motivate us, to challenge us, to be ready. It is to prepare us for the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return. It could be today. It could not, may not be in our lifetime. But when the Lord returns, all those who are dead in Christ will be caught up together to be with, will be caught up in the clouds, and we, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to be with the Lord in the air forever. At that point, we have the judgment seat of Christ. This is our evaluation. We need to be ready for that because that will determine our role and our responsibility uh, in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. So we are preparing today for what we will be in the future. The decisions you make today, tonight, tomorrow, this week, this year, are decisions that will determine who you will be and where you will be and what you will be doing in the Millennial Kingdom. So don't deceive yourself. It's very easy for us to do this. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that these decisions well, they don't have any real consequence. This is why we have challenges such as Ephesians 5:17 to redeem the time. We only have a certain number of days, weeks, and years in each of our lives. Some of us have a shorter time than others, but you only have so much. How are we using that time? We need to be prepared because the Lord's coming is near. Last time we looked at the book as a whole, and I want to make sure that you have an understanding of this book. Revelation is really simple to understand. This is not a complex book. People get all caught up in the details, trying to figure out what the symbols mean, and we'll certainly be 
investigating those. But if you have an overview, if you can just understand what the structure is, then you have something to relate all the details to. And when we get done, it will be amazing how much you understand when you read Revelation. There's three basic divisions based on Revelation chapter 1, verse uh, 19. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, the things which you have seen, these are the events that are described in Revelation chapter 1. The things which are, these are the events uh, described in Revelation 2 through 3, which emphasize the trends of the present church age, the trends in churches in the present church age, and a warning to each church that there will be, a, uh, there will be an inspection. The... Um, there will be an evaluation of each church. And those inspection reports are given for us for seven churches. Those represent the different kinds of churches that will be seen at different stages throughout the present church age. They all exist, just about all of them exist in the U.S., just all of them exist throughout the world. The things which are cover the seven letters to the seven churches. And then Revelation 4 through 22 the things which will take place after these things, that is, after the church age. Let's look at it another way. Chapter 1 is a revelation of the glorified Christ to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. And there we'll learn many important details about the person of our Lord Jesus Christ as He is pictured as the glorified Christ who is the one who is qualified to be the judge of mankind in the future. Chapters 2 and 3 describes the seven letters to the seven churches. And then chapters 4 through 22 describes the things which will take place after these things. There's a description of the events of the tribulation in chapters 4 through 19. The millennium is covered in chapter 20. And the eternal state in chapters 21 through 22. That gives you the overview. You'll get sick of that slide by the time we're done. Let's put it in an outline format so you can begin to develop this. This will be a, this is a bare bones outline. The basic points are here and then we'll begin to fill in the details as we go through our exegesis. Chapter one is the past preparation. That's Roman numeral one in the outline. The past preparation. The things which you have seen. The second uh, section, Roman numeral two, the present preparation of the church. The present preparation of the church in light of future evaluation and judgment. This is chapters two, uh, two and three, actually chapters two and three. The present preparation of the church. Roman numeral three, the prophecy of the coming judgments and judge. Roman numeral 3, the prophecy of the coming judgments and judge, chapters 5 through 22, the things which will take place after this. A key element in understanding this book is this is a book about judgment. This is a book about evaluation. The seven letters to the seven churches evaluate each church according to what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong and what they need to change. When we get into the main section which is uh, actually chapters 4 through 22. I've got a typo there. Chapters 4 through 22. These are the things which will take place later 
This describes the judgments on rebellious mankind and the coming of Jesus Christ as the judge, as the King of kings and Lord of lords in chapter 19. Then you have the establishment of the millennial kingdom in chapter 20, which ends with the great white throne judgment. And that sets up, sets up the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. So let's break that down. Roman numeral 3 covers chapters 4 through 22. Chapters 4 through 22. A, the rapture of the church and the opening of the scroll, chapters 4 through 5. That's the rapture of the church and the opening of the scroll. The scroll is the title deed to the kingdom. First of all, before the kingdom can be established, there has to be a judgment. B, under Roman numeral 3, the seven-year tribulation includes the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, chapter 6 through 18. C, the coming of the judge. This is the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 19. D, the, establish- <laughs> the establishment of the kingdom, chapter 20. And then E, the new heavens and earth, and eternity in chapter 21 and 22. That brings us to verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now, the first chapter is the present preparation. It focuses on that present preparation, or excuse me, the past preparation, the things which you have seen. This is, in essence, the prologue to the book. You can divide this first chapter into three sections. You have the introduction or prelude in verses 1 through 3. Then there is a greeting to the seven churches in verses 4 through 8, and then there is uh, a vision and instruction, the first vision in the book. There are seven visions in the book, by the way. We'll get into that uh, at the appropriate time. The vision of the Son of Man, the appearance of the Son of Man to the Apostle John in verses 9 through 20. So we will just barely get started uh, this morning on the first verse. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is made up of three words in the Greek, apocalypsis, Yesu, Christu. And I want to take it apart. There's, of course, the name Jesus Christ and then the word for revelation, which is apocalypsis. I want to take it apart and look at the two components first, and then we'll look at the phrase as a whole. The first word is apocalypsis. This is the standard Greek word for revelation. A-P-O-K-A-L-U- P-S-I-S, Apocalypsis. For many people, this is an alternate title for the book. You will hear people refer to the book of Revelation as the Apocalypse. 
Therefore, you will hear when we talk about the first four seal judgments, people will refer to the four horsemen of the apocalypse because the first four seal judgments are brought by uh, angels on horses. So the title of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Old King James Version, you would often see the title listed as The, uh, the Revelation of St. John the Divine. That is a misnomer. It is not the revelation of John. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, you will often hear people refer to the Apostle John as John the Revelator. But it's not John who is doing the revealing. He is the one who is doing the recording. It is Jesus Christ who is the one uh, who is revealing the future. It is John who is receiving the revelation. Now, apocalypsis means an unveiling, a disclosure, to make something unknown known, to uh, disclose a secret, to unveil something that has previously been unknown, to reveal to man a doctrine or doctrines that have not been previously revealed. The idea is a disclosure. This is an unveiling. It is a form of communication. Now, what's the purpose of communication? It is to make something clear. It is to disclose, not to hide. The purpose of revelation as a whole, in terms of the whole of Scripture, is to make clear, not to obscure. So you have to understand that people debate Scripture all the time, but they forget the basic basic uh, assumption is that God communicated this to to say something specific and to make it clear to mankind. He didn't give this to obfuscate the issue and to give us something to be confused over. He gave the Bible to give us clear, precise information about the spiritual life and about what is being accomplished in history and about the future. So the revelation is not given in order to confuse or to mystify people or to be a basis for division. I've even heard some people say, well, I'll just never read the book of Revelation because it's too confusing, it's too, uh, too many symbols, I just can't understand it. That is, a, in a sense, that's a blasphemous statement. God communicated to be understood. Therefore, He has given us His Holy Spirit to make it clear to us, and the assumption that God has made is that we can understand it. What I find is the reason most people don't want to understand something is because they've got some sin nature agenda at work that prevents them from uh, wanting to understand something. Now, this word apocalypsis is a word that has given rise to a title or classification of literature. Now, every now and then I'm going to make some real quick points that for most of you are just going to be something that flies over your head and just let it fly over your head. But we have a number of pastors and seminary students who uh, get tapes from this ministry, and this kind of information is important for them. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but just to give them a few clues. Apocalyptic literature is a term you'll often find. I hear people I know and respect frequently use that to refer to Revelation. The Revelation is apocalyptic literature. However, this classification of literature comes out of non-canonical books such as Baruch, Enoch, 4th Ezra, the Ascension of Isaiah, the Apocalypse of Zephaniah. Apocalyptic literature, per se, is a genre that frequently has visions, dreams, symbolic imagery, 
themes that relate to the struggle between good and evil. But one thing they also all have in common is that they're, um, they are pseudonymous. They do not have an, a, an author. They are written with, by a pseudonym, either a false name or no name. Now, Revelation clearly attests its author. The author is John. There are other differences that exist as well. And while Revelation uh, has numerous visions, has seven visions, and has uh, numerous symbols and numbers, the New Testament itself makes it clear what these are in most cases. Either Revelation itself, embedded within the book, gives us the interpretation of these symbols and numbers, or the New Testament does, or by studying uh, the source of some of the symbols in the Old Testament, we can understand what they mean. What's happened in the field of hermeneutics or interpretation is apocalyptic literature is being has developed into this kind of separate genre, which allows an extremely fluid sort of interpretation to come into being. Now, this, I think, is fed by our postmodern world, so that people start... Uh, interpreting it, it's apocalyptic, therefore it's a different category of literature, and literal hermeneutics or literal plain interpretation principles don't apply. And so they jump into some other category of, of interpretation. But the Bible does not classify uh, Revelation that way. It is a unique book. It is prophecy. It designates itself as prophecy in Revelation 1.3. Revelation 22.7, Revelation 22.10, Revelation uh, 22.18 and 19. And I think that we must distinguish, if we're going to have a classification of literature, it's prophetic literature, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. This is prophetic literature. The Bible must interpret itself. As we go through Revelation, because of the nature of Revelation, I will make a number of points about Principles of hermeneutics at different places where it's important. And one comes up in the very first, or an implication of hermeneutics comes up in the very first phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, how are we to understand this? You see the second and third word in that opening phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ is in the genitive. Revelation is in the nominative case. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christu, is in the genitive. Now, there's two different ways in which you can understand this kind of a genitive. This is going to go past most of you, but that's okay. You can understand it as an objective genitive or a subjective genitive. Now, what I mean by that is your basic noun here is revelation, which is called a noun of action. You know, it's like love. Love is a noun, but it describes an action. So you have the same thing with faith. Faith is a noun, but it's a noun of action. When you have a noun of action with a genitive, it can be either directed to the genitive or it can be coming from the genitive. So that if you talk about the, the phrase love of God, now that can mean love for God and it can mean love from God. In other words, the believer's love to God or it can mean the God's love, meaning the love God's love directed to the believer. And the difference is whether it's understood as an objective genitive or a subjective genitive. Now, this is an interpretive decision that, that a pastor needs to make. Uh, 
that can mean, and so when we have this opening phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, you could understand it as revelation about Christ, and that this book is about the ultimate revealing of Jesus at the second coming and all of the events surrounding it. Or you could understand the phrase that this is Christ giving certain information to the Apostle John about the future. This is, could be understood by either the phrase Christ's revelation or the revelation that Christ gave. Now, those are two different ideas. Now, the interesting thing is, and the interpretive problem is, that they're both true. See what I'm saying? This book is about the second coming of Jesus Christ and all the circumstances surrounding it. That's true. It's also true that this is a revelation given by the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle John. But you see, the basic principle of interpretation of literal plain hermeneutics is that a sentence can only mean one thing. It can't mean two different things. Now, those are two different things. So when John wrote this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he, could, he meant only one of them. That is a principle called single meaning of Scripture. This is foundational, and it's being just blown away today in many different places. In fact, a professor of Greek New Testament at Dallas Seminary who wrote an excellent, in many ways, an excellent and helpful grammar, invented a category of the genitive on this kind of a phrase several years ago uh, that has been heavily criticized. He calls it a plenary genitive. Plenary means full. That it means both at the same time. Now, see, the problem is that violates the principle of the single meaning of Scripture. Because what you're saying is it means two different things at the same time. And that is, a, that is flawed. And see, what happens is this is how postmodernism leaks into Christianity. Now, it's very possible that, the, that you could interpret this, as I said, either way. However, the second way is the way it should be understood because of the context. You look at the context, and we read that the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. God gave Jesus Christ something to give John. God didn't give Jesus Christ Jesus Christ. That would be the first sense. God didn't give Jesus Christ a disclosure of Jesus Christ. He gave Jesus Christ a information about the end times that Jesus Christ was then to disclose to the Apostle John. Now, that information would necessarily include information about Jesus' second coming and the events surrounding it. So we must understand the opening phrase as uh, revelation given by Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his bond servants. And that phrase, bond servants, is the Greek word doulos. And doulos means a slave. We are viewed as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I prefer that word because in English, the word servant implies that, well, I can go work for you, that's my volition, and I'm your servant, or I can go work someplace else. But the word doulos implies a certain loss of freedom. And this is the word that is used in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 11 and following, is that when we are born into the kingdom of Satan and darkness, we are slaves of Satan. We're slaves of sin, not servants. That implies that you have an option. You don't have an option. 
You are under Satan's dominion and authority, and you are under the dominion and authority of your sin nature. But when you become a believer, you are positionally free from the enslavement to the sin nature, and you are positionally removed from the kingdom of darkness. And you are now in the kingdom of Christ. You are a slave of Christ. And what Paul is basically saying in many of the New Testament passages related to the Christian life is now you need to act like you're a slave of Christ. Whenever we sin, we're acting as a rebellious slave of Christ. And now we are to act as obedient slaves of Christ. That is a point that Paul is making in Romans six thirteen and following, is that we are slaves to whomever we obey. And since we are slaves of Christ, we should obey Christ. And we should implement all of the mandates of the Scripture into our life. And so John begins under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his description of this disclosure as the revelation Jesus Christ gave to him, which God gave him, that is, Jesus Christ, to show, that is, to demonstrate to his slaves, that is, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this tells us that this disclosure is not for unbelievers. It's not for the world. That's why people get all in the news media get, can't understand What's going on when Christians start talking about events in the Middle East in relationship to prophecy? This information is given to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it said things which must shortly take place. And we will spend some more time understanding that next week. But the idea is not that they will take place shortly, that is, in a, in a, in a short time from now, but that once they begin, they will take place quickly. That once, once the rapture occurs, these events will domino very rapidly in succession. They will come very quickly in succession. So this gives us our introduction. We've gotten started on the first verse, first section of Revelation, and we will continue next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to see these events, to realize how important prophecy is in relationship to our own spiritual life, to stimulate us to uh, spiritual growth, to encourage us to not grow uh, lax in our own uh, spiritual growth, in our own study of the Word and application of the Word, that we need to be ready at any moment for your return. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this uh, morning unsure of their eternal life, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. God is omniscient. He knows and understands exactly what you believe. And at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.